The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering central please remain and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. Good I'm Ewan Potts. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, the government is to scrap the eastern leg of the HS2 high-speed rail line from Birmingham to Leeds. Instead, it's promising £96 billion towards rail improvements, including upgrading a line through the East Midlands to Sheffield, connecting the city to the bit of HS2 that which is being built. It comes as Transport Secretary Grant Shapps releases the integrated rail plan. Local businesses and politicians in the north of England have reacted angrily. Former HS2 boss John Collins says it's the same old story. This is a commitment that was given by the Prime Minister. Now it's not going to happen. And that's going to cause very significant, I think, economic harm to this part of the country. Well, it is another moment of peril for the Prime Minister, who yesterday was grilled by senior politicians, including the Labour MP and Chair of the Standards Committee, Chris Bryant, about his handling of disgraced Tory MP Owen Paterson. Boris Johnson was contrite with his own MPs at a meeting of backbenchers, the 1922 committee, saying that, yes, he had taken his eye off the road and effectively driven the car into a ditch over this issue. The House of Commons voted to adopt Johnson's plan yesterday to tighten the rules on second jobs for MPs. Labour called it a watered-down version of their tougher proposals. So the question still for the Prime Minister, can he turn the page also on the sleaze row? Mm, Well, let's bring in our guest this morning. Mike Wood is Conservative MP for Dudley South. He's also Vice Chair of the All-Party Parliamentary City Regions Transport Group. Mike, uh, thanks so much for joining us again on uh, Bloomberg Westminster. Um, A lot of businesses in the north and a lot of MPs uh, are pretty unhappy at these plans to scale back uh, HS2. Andy Burnham, the Greater Manchester Mayor, saying that no expense spared for the south, no money uh, left for the north. This uh, This is a broken promise, isn't it? It's really not. Sorry, what this is, is the biggest uh, infrastructure package ever delivered by any government outside of London. This is great news for the north and the Midlands. It means better rail services being delivered more quickly for more people on more routes across the north and Midlands. Okay, so why are uh, northern businesses, um, Andy Burnham and others, so furious uh, around this issue? And it must be said, this project is not even going to be delivered until 2029 at the earliest. It's more than a decade we've been discussing it. No, I think Andy Burnham uh, complaining about a decision the government's taken is very much a dog bites man story. I think if he was welcoming something the government announced, and he was welcoming £96 billion of investment in the transport in the Midlands and the North, that would be much more the man bites dog. And I think that's what people would like to hear from elected uh, representatives. Of course, there will be some people who had a, a stake in the old HS2 leg uh, to lead. 
but by uh, moving the money into projects that can be delivered much more quickly. You say 2029, yes, I mean, obviously that's eight years away. The truth is that the Northern Lakes of HS2 were decades away, would not have delivered anything like the same benefits for anything like the same number of routes. Eight out of ten passengers will now find that they have more trains, quicker, better services as a as a result of uh, of this investment. That's benefit that that leg of HS2 would never have delivered to uh, the north and particularly to Yorkshire and the East Midlands. Isn't the problem with getting rid of the, the eastern leg, it's not so much, uh, uh, it's all fine for Birmingham, it's fine for Manchester, and it looks like the government's going to connect up Sheffield in a slightly cobbled together kind of way, but isn't it a problem for the northeast and for Scotland? Because the point of the, the eastern leg is it would take uh, trains on fast lines most of the way uh, up there, whereas now, uh, I don't know how they're going to get there. Well, as you say, we obviously still have the northwest uh, leg of HS2. Uh, the the uh, line up to Yorkshire is still being uh, upgraded or investing in upgrading existing lines, making sure that we've got the capacity, the services on those lines the passengers uh, are going to need. And so this is much better in terms of levelling up, as well as you say, joining up the key northern cities in a way that a single, uh, or rather two, uh, rail tracks from Birmingham up to either Manchester or up to Leeds wouldn't. We need to make it easy for people to get across the cities of the north, of the Midlands. I think the, the news of the new line between uh, Birmingham and Nottingham is going to make a massive difference to people in my part of the West Midlands because of the extra capacity it then gives us on those local uh, rail lines for the local rail services that people use every day for commuting mm-hmm. in and out of work uh, and for Every, really every part of their life, whether it's going to the football, whether it's visiting family and, and friends, or uh, you know, going into, the, into town for shops. Is, it, is HS2 going to be good value then for your constituents, for the people of Dudley? Will they make their way into central Birmingham to take then expensive trains to London? Well, I think HS2 is really important for the West Midlands because of the effect it has on capacity. Everyone focuses on you know, the time saving between Birmingham and London. The key thing is that, uh, that the stretches of rail line around Birmingham, around Coventry and Northampton are some of the are really the busiest in the country. They are reaching capacity very, very quickly by having the new HS2 line, which is obviously the first major uh, first major rail line in the in the Midlands since Victorian uh, Victorian times. It does allow that extra capacity. That means that then actually my uh, rail services from uh, from Black Country in and out of Birmingham and around the Black Country. There's more capacity. People can get the trains they need. They've got the uh, they've got other uh, services. But yes, I mean it is important that if we're looking at levelling up, then uh, it, it, it makes it so much easier for businesses based in in the West Midlands, the East Midlands, and for that matter, Greater Manchester, uh, to be operating from from those great uh, great cities and regions, rather than feeling they always have to relocate to London, and that's that's why we're seeing firms like HSBC mm. relocate so so many of their staff to Birmingham, Deutsche Bank. Uh, before that, I mean, this is a massive vote of confidence in the uh, in the West Midlands, and I'm delighted that we're seeing that now being matched with big infrastructure investment that's going to directly benefit people across the Midlands and the North. A vote of confidence in the uh, West Midlands. Let's uh, change on to another subject, something which has been uh, dominating the political agenda for 
uh, a full two weeks now, and that is uh, the issue uh, of Slees and MPs uh, second jobs in the Owen Paterson row. I don't know if you're at the 1922 meeting, but Boris Johnson apparently got a pretty good reception. What do you think of of the government's proposals to reform uh, second jobs? Do they do they go far enough? Well, I think they do. I think this is a good, comprehensive package. Obviously, it's taking forward really all ten of the recommendations that the uh, Committee on Standards in Public Life made in this report uh, three years ago, putting it to the Parliamentary Committee on Standards to uh, bring forward their proposals by the end of uh, January to make sure that, firstly, obviously, there's uh, cracking down where, on where there's a lack, uh, where there's a risk of. Uh, conflict with tightening up the existing rules there, but we're also updating the code of conduct so that uh, to deal with cases where people are uh, potentially spending far too much time on other interests, on other areas of work at the detriment of representing their constituents and their parliamentary work. Okay, um, that's on second jobs. Is there not a bigger problem, though, around politicians being oblivious to the dangers of influence peddling, of foreign money in politics? Labour's Chris Bryant says that some all-party parliamentary groups are being used as a backdoor for commercial interests. The BBC says that they've uh, received £30 million in outside funding in the past five years. This has opened up a really serious issue that is a threat to democracy, perhaps? I think it can be, but obviously that, uh, that's why we have the transparency and why the accounts are obviously published, why it goes through the parliamentary uh, registrars. Uh, you know, as you may know, I uh, chair the all-party group on beer and brewing. It's, you may be surprised here, one of the largest uh, groups in parliament. Clearly, we do have a number of... Uh, companies big and small involved in brewing, involved in pubs, that work with us to make sure that we can uh, put on those events. Now, I don't benefit financially uh, out of that. None of our other members uh, benefit financially from out of that. I think Parliament and the debate would be weaker without that kind of engagement. You know, we also obviously work very closely with membership organisations like uh, Camera. So, you know, we do have the balance there. The I say the uh, accounts, the donations are are published, so they're there uh, to, to see, to make sure things are uh, above board. But yes, you're right. I mean, you obviously always have to be careful that you're not leaving yourself open to a perception that there could be uh, a conflict of interest. But I think, I think most most members of Parliament are very aware of that. I say it's, it's all out there in the open, and we all know that you know, we're one uh, mm-hmm. Sunday newspaper away from uh, things being portrayed in you know, the worst possible uh, light and uh, trying to explain afterwards. Uh, okay. Uh, it can be difficult trying to put the actual facts Just, on the record. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, it's you something we're very aware of. Okay, you mentioned that you're chair of the all-parliamentary, mm. uh, all-party parliamentary group on beer. Why does the tax on beer still matter so much to Conservatives when the alcohol industry is, you know, small, yes, pubs are closing, uh, the alcohol market is shrinking in the UK? Why is that still such a key market? Okay, so um, pubs and beer employ uh, about a million people across the country. Uh, they contribute, I think it's £30 million to the local economy in Dudley South. There'll be similar figures for every constituency in the country. These are, there are a lot of jobs. There's a lot of local prosperity 
Okay. relies on these still being successful. And as you say, pubs are closing. We see the impact in our town centres when those pubs go. We're not often five, ten years later. They're left there falling down as mm-hmm. derelict monuments of a, uh, of a former time. And I, I do think pubs actually have a good role to play. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's take a look at what else is making news in the world of politics today. Britain's debate about whether to walk away from post-Brexit commitments with the European Union over Northern Ireland risks unsettling an already spluttering economic recovery. Economists are warning that it could mean faster inflation, a hit to the pound, and that it could jeopardise any possible trade deal with the United States. Former Prime Minister Tony Blair says that his institute will publish a paper with a series of practical steps to resolve the Northern Ireland dispute. Meanwhile, The Times reports that the police response to Extinction Rebellion's two weeks of protests in London uh, will cost the taxpayer more than £18 million. The Met has already spent £50 million responding to the protest group's activities in the run-up to the fortnight of demonstrations which began in late August. There were more than 500 arrests, the majority for public order criminal damage, obstructing the highway and obstructing police. During those two weeks, more than 26,000 officers were deployed. Mm. Well, elsewhere, Boris Johnson says he would certainly consider delivering cash to Iran by plane to settle an old UK debt. That's if it meant that Tehran would free detained Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. But the Prime Minister's warning there are complexities in the case linked to other dual nationals held in the country. Iran says there's no link between the £400 million debt for undelivered weapons and the fate of Nazanin and other UK national, UK Iranian dual nationals detained in the country. Right. The Fawcett Society says that employers should stop asking job seekers about their previous salaries. The campaign group says that asking about previous pay when recruiting actually contributes to the gender pay gap, keeping women on lower wages. Now, the Fawcett Society surveyed more than 2,000 working adults and they found that almost half had been asked about past salaries. The group says that unless more is done, the gender pay gap will not close until at least... 2050. Joining us now is Jemima Olchowski, who is the chief executive of the Fawcett Society, which has been campaigning for women's rights for more than 150 years. Jemima, welcome to the programme. Thank you for being uh, with us. Look, the reason that we decided to do this story, of course, is that it is equal pay day today. Just explain what that is and what that means. I suspect a lot of women working out there might know Sure. Well, um, as you say, today's equal pay day. And because on average, women working full time still earn only 88 pence for every pound that a man earns from today, they're effectively working for free. And just explain uh, uh, when the how, how the date of equal pay day has changed in recent years. Are, are we actually making any progress on this? Yeah, we are making um, we are making slow and gradual progress. So that gap, um, the 
the gap is currently 11.9%. And that has come down from 13.1% a couple of years ago. But as you pointed out, progress is very slow. And it's incredibly costly for women, this gap, because it means they earn less. They're not able to achieve their full earning potential during their working lifetimes. It also means that when they retire, they tend to retire on much, much smaller pension pots and are much more likely to living in poverty. So it really isn't something that we can afford to take our time and wait um, for change to happen. Okay, why is this an issue then with employers asking about previous pay rates? I mean, isn't that a fair question for for an employer? Well, because of the gender pay gap, women, along with other people, for instance, people of colour, people with disabilities, they tend to earn less on average than, in this case, their male counterparts. So when employers ask about salary history and then use that to base their salary offers to new recruits, on on that figure, they're basically importing and bringing into their organisation the unfairness and disadvantage and discrimination that those people have experienced in the past. So it can mean that they end up perpetuating and embedding the gender pay gap. It's much better to base a salary offer on skill, responsibility, ability, and 80% of people that we polled agreed that that's by far a better way to make judgments about salary offers. You can see how if you were setting pay, though, for somebody coming into an organisation, it would be a, a sort of obvious question to ask, though. You know, it's it's, it's quite difficult to, to, to set pay rates, I would imagine. I haven't done it myself. But so you, you can understand why employers would want to do that. Well, I think one of the things that comes out of our survey is that they're just not getting very reliable data. So four in ten people have been untruthful when giving that information. And we know that what's happening is it's being used to offer the lowest possible salary to to people and that that is perpetuating this inequality. So when employers take this simple step, there's good evidence that it can close gender pay gaps. In America, there's 21 states or city governments that have introduced some kind of ban on asking for salary history. And there's really good evidence that it's having a really positive effect. The one study from Boston found that and banning the asking about salary history could close the gender pay gap for new starters by 43%. And, of course, the other thing to note is, although our survey found half of people had been asked this question, half hadn't. So there are lots of employers out there who aren't asking this information. And today we're asking employers to sign our pledge to end salary history, to stop collecting that information and asking that question. And over 40 employers have already signed up. So it's clear that this isn't really necessary. It's a kind of a dated practice. And it one that risks making it harder for employers to close that gender pay gap. Jemima, I've heard this argument before. Women choose lower paid sectors and roles, you know, that uh, they choose caring professions that we all know pay less. And that actually you're not going to change the gender pay gap unless women decide to choose other careers and professions. Well, the, the gender pay gap is a really complex issue and it really is an indicator of a whole series of ways that women are disadvantaged in our economy. So yeah, women are much more likely, for instance, to work in part-time roles. That's because women still bear by far the greatest responsibility for unpaid care work. That means they need flexibility that isn't available elsewhere. Jobs that are typically done by women tend to be lower paid, even though we know and we saw during the pandemic just how vital and important those jobs are, the work of our carers and our frontline health professionals. Now, those jobs deserve to be paid at a much higher rate that recognise the skills that women bring. 54,000 women um, are forced to leave their job early every year as a result of becoming pregnant, having a baby and the discrimination that they experience. We still have a workplace that's very biased 
um, against people who have caring responsibilities, that judges women harshly and differently. So really, I think we need to talk about changing those conditions, changing the way that we value women's work before we start blaming women for making reasonable and rational choices. You've very clearly laid out what is a very a complex root of this of this problem. How much is is unequal pay for the same work an issue that's been illegal since since nineteen seventies? Does that does that still go on in in Britain in twenty twenty one? Unfortunately, it does still happen. Um, so there's evidence that suggests around a third of the gender pay gap figure is probably down to discrimination. It can't be explained by job choice or age, or um, education level. Um, So we know that it still happens, and we see lots of high-profile equal pay cases being taken through the courts. The trouble is it's very difficult to bring a claim. It's very um, challenging the ruling experience. And in order to bring a claim, you need to know that you're being paid unfairly. But our evidence shows that most women don't have access to that information. Most don't know what men in their workplace are earning. So we're also calling for a right to know, the right to know what your fellow employees are earning, if they're a comparator, if they're doing light work, so that you can find out if you're being paid fairly and challenge your employer if you're not. Is the government really listening to any of this? Um, I mean, we've come out of a pandemic that has been vastly unequal in terms of health impact. There were few policies from the government for families, for example, violence against women, feeding children if they weren't in school and so on. Do you feel that these sorts of days and occasions are having an impact? We've seen real progress. The gap is slowly closing. We'd like it to be quicker. And we've seen the introduction, for instance, of things like gender pay gap reporting, which Borset campaigned very hard for, where now employers Mm. have to report their gap. And there's some evidence that that is beginning to have an impact for those who report and share that information. But look, there's much more that needs to be done. I think the last 18 months have made very clear that it will be women that bear the brunt when things get tough. It was women who were more likely to be furloughed, but less likely to have their wages topped up. It was women that took on the vast majority of that extra care work, looking after children, doing homeschooling. And that has also had a toll on mental health. And as you say, sadly, we've seen big spikes and increases in violence against women and girls. So if we're serious about addressing these issues, if we're serious about ensuring equality between women and men, we really need to step up our game and take much more assertive action. Give us some examples of good practice um, sectors or companies which are, which are doing, doing well on this. So the, the companies that tend to do the best on um, having a narrow agenda pay gap have very clear structures and systems for pay and progression. So there's transparency. The more kind of discretion you tend to have in a system, the more we find inequalities and biases mm. um, play out. It's really important to have flexible working that enables women to stay in quality, well-paid work that's appropriate for their level of skill, even if they've got those caring responsibilities. And of course, that's helpful for other people too. You know, that we've seen in the pandemic, although women did more of the caring, men did also increase the amount that they did. And many of them want to preserve that and to have those relationships with their families. So flexibility is good for everyone. And we've seen as well, you know, that was something where we've seen a a real culture change. It was considered, you know, impossible in lots of organisations that people could work from home or work flexibly. 
then, you know, when, when yeah. things changed and it was vital, it happened overnight. And, and half of people did work from home in that first lockdown. That's an opportunity for employers to reassess. What do we really need? Do we really need someone sat at this desk between a set number of hours every day? Mm-hmm. Or do we need someone who can deliver a set of outcomes and outputs at times and in places that work for them? That yeah. improves um, their ability to recruit and retain the best talent. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.